You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 300 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. I made it, 300. That's a nice round number. We won't say congratulations, we don't want to do that. We don't want to congratulate, we'll congratulate each other when it's all finished. 300 is, I think, the limit of how many podcast episodes you can have on iTunes. That means if I post episode 301, then episode 1 will fall into oblivion. Which is a bit shit if you ask me. 300 also has a meaning. If you keep seeing the number 300 so often that it begins worrying you, there isn't a need for you to be upset because you repeatedly see this number. The explanation is quite simple. It's an attempt of your guardian angels to contact you. The number 300 is a blend of energies of the numbers 3 and 0. The number 0 amplifies the influence of other numbers and in this, this number, number it appears twice and that amplifies its influence as well. The number 3 symbolizes enthusiasm, optimism, joy, expansion, creativity, freedom. But I call bullshit on that. Uh, but I still think we should highlight some of the past episodes I've done. Some gems from the podcast. Mainly gems from all the episodes I've had since episode 200. Here we go. And, you know, people say something. And you say to them, well, how do you know that? Oh, well, everyone knows that. Well, I don't know that. In fact, I, I think something different. Now, where did you get it from? And they'll get it from some external source. Have you checked it? Do you know that's true? Or are you just accepting it on face value? Well, it's almost entirely on face value. And, you know, the, the Nazis said, you know, the bigger the lie, keep repeating it, the more we'll believe it. So what people need to do if they have self-respect and they want to know what's going on in the world um, is to put down the preconceived ideas and, and look again at situations and see what the evidence is, what the facts are. I talk about um, consciousness, the nature of reality, who we are, not the body, not the, the labels we give ourselves and are given um, all our lives, but the consciousness that's having the experiences which we give labels to. So that the I'm, I'm labeled David Icke. That's not who I am. That's an experience. What I am is the consciousness having that experience. I'm called a man. That's not who I am. That's an experience that my consciousness is experiencing. And these are transitory experiences that we give labels to and then self-identify with. And once you self-identify with the labels, then you have all the fault lines of divide and rule. This, this religion against that religion, this polit political belief against that political belief, this race against that race, and so on. And it all comes from self-identifying with labels. Um, whereas what we are is points of attention, I would suggest, in the same infinite stream of consciousness, having different experiences. And that's, that's what I talk about in, in, in at great length and in great detail and all the things that come from that. And the fact that, that um, yeah, love is the answer because we have so much unloving things going on in the world which lead to unloving actions. 
and effects like wars and conflicts and abuse. But what is love? That's that's probably the most misunderstood word at all, of all, because, you know, love is perceived so much as a physical attraction. When that's a physical attraction, you see true expressions of love in friendship, for instance. You know, you can have a partner who you are physically attracted to who will eventually turn on you and walk away or cause you problems because the attraction dies. But a friend is always there, no matter what. That great line about a friend is someone who walks in the room when everyone else is walking out. A friend says, I don't agree with what you've done necessarily, but I'm your friend. So how can I help you? That's that's true uh, expression of love compared with, uh, you know, other forms of relationship, I would suggest. What is love? Is it um, I love you, darling? And, and, and you know, I, I send you uh, roses on the right day because it's in my diary. Or is love doing what you believe to be right? no matter what the consequences for you. And, you know, people might might say, oh, you're saying this, you're saying that, no, that don't sound like love. Well, hold on a minute. The fact that I'm doing it is an expression of that. Because when I started out 30 years ago um, and started going into information that I knew when I made it public, I would get enormous ridicule and abuse. I did it anyway. And I did it anyway because I don't want the world to go on being what it is. And I certainly don't want it to go where it's planned to go for the young generations who will have to experience that full blown. And so you get up every day to try to make a difference. And that's an expression of love in um, in the sense of I don't have to do it. I could live out my life quietly and not take abuse and not take ridicule. But I do it because I believe in the fact that it needs doing. So love takes many, many um, expressions. It's like courage. You know, you look at physical courage. You look at the extraordinary things that troops do in battle. Enormous feats of courage, putting their lives at risk to help a, a, a colleague or whatever. And that is that is an amazing thing, physical courage. But there's another form of courage, which I don't know what you might um, call it. Emotional courage. I don't know. Which so many people with physical courage don't have. But it's just as important, many ways more important, because. For instance, you you'll have a soldier who will do an amazing feat of physical courage to save a, a friend, who will be terrified of saying something that another soldier with more lines on their arms um, won't like. You'll go, you'll go into battle, you'll do amazing things of physical courage, but you're terrified 
of the um, of upsetting someone with more lines on their arms than you have, superior officers or whatever. And you see this um, in society in general, where people will do feats of physical courage, but be terrified of taking on the system. Not in a physical way, but in, a, in a, another way that says, I'm not having it. I'm not standing for this. No, no, I'm not not going to say that because you tell me to. You, you tell me not to say it. I'm going to say it louder. That's another form of courage, which is different from physical courage. But, but fundamentally, I would say more important, especially now, where we need people to stand up with that emotional courage and say, not having it, not having it, not standing for it. And if enough of us come together like that, then this house of cards will come down because that's what it is. I think the interesting thing is when when we started advocating basic income, Everybody said, okay, well, that's possible in a rich country, uh, but it's not possible in a low-income country. How can you possibly give a basic income to everybody in a low-income developing country? Well, now I find that some people are making the opposite argument, that you could introduce a basic income in, in India, where we've piloted, uh, or in Africa, but you couldn't do it in a rich country like the Netherlands or Britain or the United States. Um, I think both uh, positions are wrong. I think it's quite feasible to introduce a basic income of a modest amount in a country like India, where the government pays out something like eight or nine percent in subsidies that mainly go to the eight or nine percent of GDP of national income in subsidies that mainly go to the middle classes and rich corporations. If you just diverted half of that, you could give every Indian, every 1.4 billion Indians, a modest basic income that would enable them to have dignity and pursue a good life. Not very much, but it would be, it would be a hell of a lot better than now. There is... Uh, uh, what is like an old saying about telling the bees? In other words, for the honeybees, it was understood for centuries, if not longer, that whoever the beekeeper was who tended to those hives, the beekeeper formed a relationship with their honeybees. And so then when that beekeeper died, it became, it was very important that someone tell the bees that they died because there were times when a beekeeper died and then all his bees flew away or, or, or died. So that's just very, very interesting. And you know, Rudolf Steiner spoke a lot about this. He gave a series of lectures on the, on the bees. I'm a big 
I really appreciate what, what he brought into the world, Steiner. He was a multifaceted genius. But he spoke to the the the, the hive, first of all, is like a single being, and every every bee in there is like a cell of, of that being. And the importance of this profound connection between the beekeeper and the hive that he or she is, is tending. Meeting dead relatives was the most common theme I came across in my research, but there's other themes, sort of um, the feelings of peace and tranquility. Um, sometimes people meet a religious figure or a being of light. Very often that figure is associated with the person's culture. So people in the West are more likely to see images of Jesus Christ, whereas people in India, for example, are more likely to see Yama, the god of the dead. Um, a life review is very common and with a life review it's very interesting because people actually feel that they relive the whole of their life and they may only be unconscious for a matter of seconds but they've actually relived the whole of their life and sometimes they can relive parts of their life from a third person perspective. So people who they've interacted with throughout their life they can suddenly feel like what it's like to be in their shoes. And there's been examples of people who have inflicted violence on some people, but then they've been standing in their shoes and they feel like what it's like to be on the receiving end of that violence. And conversely as well, when people have done nice deeds, they also feel like what it's like to be in receipt of those nice deeds as well. And when people return to life after the near-death experience, very often the experience of the life review is what guides them from a moral perspective as well. So it's a very um, interesting aspect of the near-death experience. Sure. Well, interestingly, you know, people like the Panan, they're, they're so of one mind anyway, because their whole belief system and their whole um, sort of value system is just based on creating a world for the for their children. You know, so they're, they're all buying into the same system anyway, and that arbitrates against nearly all of the conflicts that they have. And so you find, I think that if I went and spoke to the Panan and asked them most questions about what they want to do, they're almost all in complete agreement the whole time. Um, of course, that doesn't mean to say it's utopian. There will be conflicts. There will be jealousies and, and upsets and what have you. But um, they're generally conflict-adverse types of people, so they would step away from conflict rather than step into it. That would be their normal methodology. They're pacifistic. Um, uh, but of course that's that's possible for them because they have unlimited space or at least used to have unlimited space to retreat into now it's harder now they're talking about fighting for the first time because they're just like in a tiny little enclave and the rest of their world is, is gone you know the only these egalitarian societies are very vulnerable to being um, 
to being persecuted by the more advanced or technologically advanced and aggressive uh, agricultural societies that generally are surrounding them. And so they've traditionally either assimilated or retreated, but there's no more retreating now, so their backs are against the wall. Um, and so the, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't have aggression in their in their souls or, or in their in their psyches, but they um, but they tend to use it only as a last resort. Amazonians think about Westerners who come to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca. I put this question to several Amazonian people who work to defend indigenous cultures and languages and who have no direct interest in the ayahuasca economy or in the commerce of medicinal plants. Never Tuesta Seron, the Awahun director of a training program for bilingual indigenous teachers in Iquitos, Peru, um, told me that he was optimistic about the new visitors. I think it is good if Europeans come to learn about the knowledge of indigenous peoples, he said. The only thing he asked was that the visitors follow proper procedures. But he also said that this was just his personal opinion, and so he submitted my question to several indigenous elders who work for the program that he runs and um, who have been elected by their respective peoples to teach their indigenous language and culture to future teachers in training. And None of the elders who responded objected to Westerners who come to drink ayahuasca, but several found it problematic when the Westerners extracted ayahuasca and took it back to their countries. And I'll just read you a couple of quotes. As Maritza Ramirez Tamani, an elder of the Kukamakukamiria people, said, quote, that gringos come to drink is inevitable, but what is not good is that they take ayahuasca to drink in other places. They already stole everything we had. It's the last straw that they should also steal our spiritual strength. I would ask the Europeans that they drink, but that they do not take it back to their countries because this breaks the strength and leaves the maestros weakened. And I stood up, and as soon as I stood up, I lost, I, I could not stand up. I didn't, I lost where I was. I didn't know what was left or right and I just fell to the floor 
While I was sitting or laying down on my mat, it didn't feel strong. I didn't have much visuals. I was in the ayahuasca realms, hard to explain, but I was there and I did get into it. But it felt weak. But as soon as I stood up, it was like really overpowering. And I was, it caught me by surprise and I just fell to the floor and it kind of shocked me, you know, because, you know, it can be shocking to fall. And, but the sitters, they were really quick. So as soon as I fell, they picked me up, two of them. And they knew that I was heading for the toilet. So they just picked me up and kind of dragged me, half standing, out the door towards where the toilets were. And the very, ex- the very moment, because when they grabbed me, because when they grabbed me, that was also a shock. Like two people come and grab you. It's like, oh, I just fell down and now somebody's grabbing me. Every, everything, you know, pe- when people do something fast, when you're in the psychedelic realm, it's like very like intense. And also changing environment is very tense. Like if you're in one, if you're in like, let's say you're in your bedroom and you walk into the kitchen and you've taken a high dose of psychedelics, it will affect your experience changing location. It can be very intense. So imagine that I've fallen down. I got jumped by these two people who grabbed me and lifted me up. They dragged me out into the next room. So all of that in on its own was quite intense. But what what made it even more intense was at exactly at the same moment when all this happened, this happened. That guy who was losing his mind, when all that was happening to me, he did this. In episode 269, I had Carlos Tanner on as a guest. Carlos funded the Ayahuasca Foundation in 2008. And the Ayahuasca Foundation envisions a future where a new paradigm of medical understanding predominates every culture of the world. In this new field of medicine, modern technology is used alongside natural medicine to produce a holotropic treatment plan, affecting positive change on every level of human existence. Anyway, in that episode he talks a bit about a bioluminescent tree called the Neurau. And this story I think is fascinating and I want to honor it by playing that part of the episode again. I could have included it in the mix you just heard, but I wanted this one to stand on its own feet. Here's Carlos. Because we work with Shipibo healers from a family that works with a very special tree called Noya Rao, a bioluminescent tree. But yeah, we've been moving forward quite a bit with our work with that tree. And now we offer diets with Noya Rao on our retreats as well as the courses that we offer. So what kind of effect does this tree have? It's more uh, of a healing nature. It's not psychedelic, but it's like bioluminescent during the night or how does it work? Yes, exactly. It is bioluminescent. Um, And for that reason, it is quite literally an enlightened tree. Uh, I have my own personal theory about it, which is that it is not an actual species of tree. We did have three botanists from Kew Gardens come and stay with us, and they shot a, a small documentary film. And 
they didn't feel that it was uh, a unique species. Um, and, and because there are three of them that we have on our property and, and now like two others that we've found on, on other properties that belong to the Coranderos. And that I think was really, uh, what caused me to, to feel this way. But, um, the three trees that we have on our property doesn't, don't look alike. Like they, they, their leaves will glow in the dark but yet their leaves do not have the same shape. Two of them do look alike, and then one of them is not, it, it doesn't look like the same species. So I actually think that they are bioluminescent, most likely because of some sort of symbiotic relationship with another organism, perhaps like a fungi or something. But when you diet the trees, the spirit that you encounter, at least that I've encountered and that almost everyone that does have uh, interaction with the spirit during plant dietas with Neurao is very special. Uh, it's like an enlightened being, like a like a Buddha. Um, she wants you really to find your own light within. She's constantly like putting uh, shining bright light on you and trying to like fill you with bright light. Um, so. You know, it's it's even beyond healing, I would say, or it's the the core essence of healing, which is that we remember or realize our divine selves, you know, our light bodies. And when we commune with those light bodies, then we achieve a health that goes beyond the physical realm. And into the spiritual realm and like true true health, I guess, would be the perspective that I have on it. But it's it's really, really fascinating. And and why I say that having the two plants um, on our other Coranderos properties added to that was because uh, I work with three different Coranderos or the Ayahuasca Foundation works with three Coranderos, but they're all brothers. And um, they at one point all lived on one property and then as they made enough money, they bought their own land and built their own houses. And when they bought their land, um, Don Miguel, for example, bought some land and he built a house. He didn't have a Neurau tree on his land. And Don Rohner, the younger brother, he bought his own land and bought and built his own house. And he didn't have a Neurau tree on his land either. But yet both of them had dieted Neurau. You know, they had the energy of Neurau. And so when they started having ceremonies on their property, in their homes, or eventually in a, in a ceremony space called the Maloka that they built behind their house, they would call the spirit of Neurau to be with them in those ceremonies, just as a Corandero does with all of their diets or their plant allies, if you want to call them that. And, and then eventually they found that there was a Neurau tree in their backyard. And I don't know if there actually was a tree and they didn't notice. I mean, it's a bioluminescent tree. You'd think you might notice, but I kind of feel like the tree, one of the trees in their backyard became enlightened uh, because of the energy that was being called forth in the ceremonies through working with the Neurau from their older brother, Don Enrique's property. I don't know if all of that makes sense. It's kind of crazy, but it's also very, very fascinating. Um, as well, like 
there's only two families that we're aware of that work with Noyerao. That would be the Mahua family and the Lopez family. We work with both of those families, Doña Bilma Mahua and Don Enrique, Don Miguel and Don Roner Lopez. And Don Benjamin Mahua, who is Doña Bilma's father, he was kind of like the pioneer of Noyerao. He brought back the connection to Noyerao. Um, the, the history of Noyerao is really fascinating as well. It's really only known amongst the Shipibo, and they believed that it was almost like a mythological plant in the sense that there are stories about it, but no one thought it existed anymore. And then Benjamin, as the story goes, about 40 years ago was traveling in Iquitos and was gifted a pipe that he was told was made from the Neuerau tree. But he never saw the tree, he just had this pipe, but he was able to dye it with the pipe and became what we would call a grand maestro as a result of it. Like his connection to Neuerau uh, and allowed him to have this uh, higher spiritual ability, I guess you could say. And he then passed that pipe to his family members. Like they did diets using this pipe. And eventually, Doña Bilma, his daughter, did a diet with that pipe. And she was married, though, to Don Enrique Lopez. And so he did a diet with that pipe. But when he did the diet, he saw a vision of the actual tree. And he went looking for it, and he found it, and then purchased that land. And then we built our school around that tree. And um, so, it, I mean, it's such a cool story. But Don Benjamin was really kind of like the the godfather, so to speak, of Neuerau diets or Neuerau at all, because he may really have been, or to this day may be the oldest person alive to do Neuerau diets. And he said that there were Neuerau trees all over the world, but that they didn't look the same. And so that also kind of contributed to my feeling that Neuerau wasn't a statement of species, but a statement of consciousness in the same way that Buddha isn't really a term like a name of a person. Buddha is a name of a state of consciousness and that there are have been numerous Buddhas, even though we might say the Buddha, which normally that would be like Gautam Buddha. There are other Buddhas that have existed. And and so the term Buddha really just means like a state of a, attainment. And I kind of feel like perhaps that is actually more accurate to describe what Noya Rao refers to, if that makes sense. I know it's kind of crazy, but that's my best attempt at trying to explain it. If you like this podcast, but want to feast your eyes as well as your ears, perhaps you should head over to YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Simply search Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and it shall appear. Or click the link in the program notes of this episode. I put a lot of effort into the videos I make and hopefully you'll enjoy them. If you want to support me, please subscribe on YouTube and even better, leave a like or a nice comment. YouTube is severely lacking in nice comments, so with your help, Let's change that. Anyway, I hope I will see you there. You can also leave a nice review on iTunes. Uh, that always helps or become a patron. 
All the links can be found in the program notes or on naturalbornalchemist.com. Keep in mind that the podcast is ad-free, so anything you can do to support is appreciated greatly. I'm going to end this episode and this era of the first 300 episodes with the wonderful song, Ah, Sweet Mystery of Life, sung by Jeanette MacDonald. The lyrics of this song are amazing, and you should really pay attention to the lyrics. In fact, I'll quickly read them to you now. That way you can enjoy the song even more. Ah, sweet mystery of life, at last I've found thee. Ah, I know at last the secret of it all. All the longing, seeking, striving, waiting, yearning. The burning hopes, the joy and idle tears that fall. For his love and love alone the world is seeking. And his love and love alone that can repay. This the answer, this the end, and all of living. For it is love alone that rules for a. Love and love alone the world is seeking. For it's love and love alone that can repay. This the answer, this the end and all of living. For it is love alone that rules for a. Freedom is in the mind.